Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this opportunity we have to spend time in your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. God, you are our blessed rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, um, throughout this Lenten season, we've been uh, journeying through a uh, seven-week sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, um, which we, of course, just recited together. And uh, my, my hope for this sermon series is that we can look beyond the creed itself uh, to some of the biblical truths that it points to and consider what those truths mean for our lives today. Uh, as, I, as I shared uh, the, these past couple of weeks, creeds don't hold any authority in and of themselves. All right? so this, this Apostles' Creed was, was something that tradition has, has been passed down to us from the Apostles throughout the, the ages of, of the church, um, but it's, it points to biblical truths. Right? So the, the creed points outside of itself into the ultimate authority of Scripture. Um, kind of like the moon, right? which doesn't have any light of its own, but it reflects the light of the sun. Right? So just as the, the, the moon reflects the light of the sun, the Apostles' Creed reflects biblical truths about our faith. Um, and uh, the line, uh, each, each week in the sermon series we've been uh, zooming in on one line of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, so last week, we uh, zoomed in on the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And this week, we're going to talk about the line that says, Who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. So this line of the creed that pretty much sums up Jesus' entire birth, life, and death, right, points to what is known as the mystery of of the incarnation. That's a big word for basically Jesus becoming human and humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. So in order to, to, to more deeply explore the, the mystery of the incarnation, um, we're going to be walking through the, the reading that we just read this morning, uh, which comes to us from Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them back up to there. If you don't, um, there are Bibles in front of you in your pews. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you uh, this morning. Um, so I invite you to get your Bibles out, and uh, we're going to walk through this uh, together this morning. Um, so uh, before we jump in, uh, just a couple of, of fun facts about the book of Hebrews. Uh, first of all, um, we don't know who wrote it, uh, or even for that matter, who it was written to. Uh, scholars can say with a fair amount of certainty that the, the author was not the Apostle Paul, but that's about it. Uh, so imagine your friend handing you a book uh, and telling you, uh, this was written by someone somewhere, uh, to someone somewhere, between the years of 1920 and 1970. Enjoy! Um, so that, uh, that's pretty much the book of Hebrews. Um, we're not really sure where it came from, who it was to, uh, but it's, it's a wonderful book. Uh, the, the second fun fact about the book of Hebrews um, is that it might have been uh, a sermon rather than a letter to a church. 
Uh, so even though it's stuck in with a bunch of other letters to churches in our Bibles, um, this book actually um, employs language and turns a phrase that's it's more like preaching than writing. Um, so given those two fun facts, um, we're just going to refer to the author of Hebrews as the preacher for our purposes. All right. So when you hear me say the preacher today, I'm referring to the, the person who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, and the main issue that, that the preacher seems to be addressing in this sermon or letter or whatever it is, um, is a church who is growing weary in the face of persecution um, that they were facing on account of their faith. Uh, from what we read in the, the beginning of chapter 2, some of the believers in this unidentified church were in danger of drifting away from the message that they had received, of neglecting the, the message spoken by Jesus and attested by God, and were in danger of coming under God's judgment for fading or falling away from the faith that they had once come to know. All right, so they were in danger of, of kind of falling away from their faith because they were getting weary. Um, and it seems that the, the members of this congregation had lost status and esteem in their neighbor's eyes. Uh, they, they had lost the, the place they once held in society, and they, they lacked approval from the outside world. And given all this, they were just tired. They were just tired. Tired of being treated like second-class citizens. Tired of making sacrifices for Jesus with no apparent reward, at least in this life. Because they could remember the, the days early on in their faith, days marked by signs and wonders, charismatic experiences of the Holy Spirit, and the excitement of experiencing the gift of Christ's salvation for the first time. So they, they had that in their memory. But continuing in the faith that they had once known was now getting more difficult, and more costly every day. If Jesus had come to bring life to the full, they were wondering, where was this life? It seemed like all they could see was suffering and perseverance in their future, not exactly how they may have pictured what it would be like to follow Jesus. And because of this, some of them had begun to leave the church. Others were on the brink. This was not the, the life they had in mind when they signed the dotted line. Pastor theologian Tom Long put it this way. He said, The weary congregation of Hebrews longed for a gospel without a cross, a redemption without sacrifice, a faith without pain, something pristine and holy, something that, that does not exhaust the faithful with calls to put one foot in front of the other in daily obedience, something beautiful like an image of God in an unspoiled heaven surrounded by lovely angels singing untroubled hymns. Anything but a weeping, suffering Jesus marching through tragic history with his head bowed and his face bloodied. Now, it's all too easy for us to relate to this kind of thinking today. And I think largely because the American dream has become such a part of who we are. We all want a better life for ourselves, whatever that may look like for us personally. Each of us has a different version. Much like the, the congregation of Hebrews, we want our lives to be this upward ascent to glory, right? Not, not a downward descent to suffering. So if placing our faith 
And Jesus would promise us not only eternal life, but a better life here and now. We'd be stupid not to sign up for that, right? I mean, who doesn't want to have their cake and eat it too? But what about when life here and now doesn't get better? What about the times when we don't feel like denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following after Jesus? What about the times when we're called to, to sacrifice something dear to us in order to follow Jesus, even if it ends up threatening our life, liberty, or God forbid, our pursuit of happiness? Would we keep following Jesus? Or like the Hebrews, would we be tempted to fall away from the faith? After all, it's, it's a lot easier to just tell stories about Jesus' life and teaching and talk, talk about how Jesus can give you your best life now, right? And, and how he can give you hope of a future beyond this life. And considering our desire to have our cake and eat it too, it's, it's tempting to, to sanitize the gospel to make it more palatable. I'm going to say that one more time. It's tempting to sanitize the gospel to make it more palatable. But the message that the congregation of Hebrews was confronted with in our reading and the message that we are confronted with today is one of Jesus humbling himself, taking on our broken humanity, and suffering to the point of death on a cross. Because as the preacher of Hebrews knew, a gospel without the cross is no gospel at all. But why? Why can't we just have the gospel without the cross, right? Why can't we just have our best life now and then pie in the sky when we die by and by? That sounds pretty good to me, amen? But to put it bluntly, why did the God of the universe have to become human, suffer death on a cross, and call us to share in his suffering? Wasn't there another way and that's exactly the, the question that the preacher of Hebrews addresses in our passage for this morning. He begins verse 5 by marveling at the, the mystery of Jesus becoming human. In the, the verses before this passage, he was speaking of how much greater Jesus is than the angels, right? Before Jesus became human, he existed in glory with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. In John 1, uh, 1 through 3, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So we get this sense that, that Jesus was never created. He, he has always existed with God the Father and was the very Word by which God spoke the cosmos into being. Do you ever think about that? Jesus was the Word by which God spoke the cosmos into being. Mind blow for this morning. All right, so Jesus is and always has been God's only Son. And He's exalted above all things. And, and even the angels bow down in worship. But in coming to earth, Jesus did not remain in this lofty position. Instead, kind of like Travis's plunger illustration, He submitted Himself to becoming lower than the angels for a time in order to bring us salvation. Verse 5 in our passage for this morning. Now, God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels, but someone testified somewhere, and that someone would be David, and that somewhere would be Psalm 8, what are human beings that you're mindful of them, or mortals that you care for them? You've made them a little lower, uh, uh, for a little while, lower than the angels. 
You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. So this psalmate speaks to God creating us humans in his own image, which is what makes us unique to the rest of creation. Right? One of the amazing things about being human is that we are the only beings on the face of the planet that have the capacity to know and love God. No other creature is able to do that. But this uniqueness comes with a responsibility. In Genesis, we hear a story of God creating the heavens, the earth, and all that's in them, and then placing humans in that creation to care for it and subdue it. So by placing His image within us, God crowned us with glory and honor and and placed all things under our feet. That was the responsibility that we were given as, as image bearers of God. But of course, we all know how that story goes. We misuse that power that God gave us. Instead of choosing to love God by living the way that He had commanded, we chose our own way. We used the very power that God gave us as a unique gift to turn against Him. And this is why the preacher of Hebrews continues, verse 8, in putting everything under them, that is, us humans, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to them. You see, when we turned away from God, it didn't just have an effect on our personal relationship with God. It had an effect on all creation. Sin, or or the choice not to live by God's good commands that He set in place so that we might have life, had a poisonous effect on all creation. When we chose to live our way instead of God's way, all creation was subjected to this brokenness. And the forces of evil now reigned. Pain entered the picture. Suffering entered the picture. Death entered the picture. And now, instead of all creation being subject to us humans as God intended, the forces of evil took that place and we became subject to their power. So when you talk about the fall of humanity, I mean, that's pretty huge implications, right? Pain, death, suffering, us humans, you know, getting relinquished from our place of of power that God placed us in, and now we are under this reign of sin and death and evil. And that's where us humans were for the next few thousand years. Of course, until Jesus came. Verse 9, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Through these verses, we begin to understand why Jesus had to become human. Jesus had to become lower than the angels and become one of us so that he might taste the death that humanity has been in subjection to ever since our fall into sin. In the mid-1800s, the the engineers for the first transcontinental railroad were planning the route for the Central Pacific Railroad, which is part of it, and uh, they ran into a problem in the planning process. The Sierra Nevada Mountains, kind of in the way. Um, They couldn't go up them and they couldn't go around them, so they decided, why try to go up the Sierra Nevada Mountains when you can go through the Sierra Nevada Mountains? And in an amazing feat of engineering, they took some TNT and started blowing through the base of the Sierra Nevada Mountains to make themselves a tunnel. Now, before Jesus came, death was kind of like the Sierra Nevada Mountains, except we didn't have TNT. It was a final enemy that that all of us had faced since the beginning of time. Did you know that there is a one-in-one chance that you will die someday? They pay me to be a pastor, not a mathematician. 
Um, so, so you can't go up the mountain, right? You can't go up the mountain. You can't go around it. You're going to die. But Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation, he was one with the TNT. And he took that TNT and he blew right through the base of that mountain. Amen? Verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. I want us to stop there for a second because there was, there was a phrase there that kind of made me go, what? That God should make the pioneer of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Well, wasn't Jesus already perfect? I mean, if he's God's only son, wasn't he already perfect before he came to the earth? Now, it's true that Jesus was perfect in the sense that he was without sin. But here's what God did. By sending Jesus to take on our humanity, God made Jesus the perfect sacrifice for our sin. By sending His Son to take on our brokenness and suffering, God proved His love for us in Jesus. He made perfect His love for us in Jesus. So I want you to think about it in terms of, of marriage. All right, My wife and I, uh, who she's not here today, she's actually up in Peoria uh, visiting her parents this weekend, uh, but we are coming up on seven years of marriage, and I can tell you that, that those vows that we took seven years ago mean a whole lot more today than the day we got married, and they'll probably mean even more 50 years from now. Anybody been married 50 years in here? All right, so you guys know, right? The vows that you took 50 years ago probably mean a whole lot more than they did when you took them. Because you see, it was relatively easy for me to stand up on our wedding day and say those romantically solemn vows to one another, never mind the fact that I bawled like a baby the entire ceremony. Like, my wife pulled up way better than I did. Like, she was like wiping tears from my face throughout the ceremony. Um, but when you start living out those marriage vows, you begin to understand what you committed to. Right? It's only when your love for one another is put to the test that you begin to understand what you meant when you vowed to stay together, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. It's only when your love is put to the test that you begin to understand those words. Otherwise, they're just that, words. And in the same way, that the longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize what being a Christian means. Because it's one thing to experience that warm, that, that initial warm light of, of God's grace and, and feel His love shed abroad in your heart. But it's another thing to feel that warm light on the other side of trials in your faith. To be assured after a season of hardship or grief or doubt or pain that God was there the entire time and that you were still God's beloved child. And this is all to say that, that love that weathers hardship is true love. And the Bible has a name for this kind of love, agape. Agape love is a love that persists through hardship, that chooses to love even when the, the beloved is not worthy of love. The more hardship I experience in my own life, the, the more I marvel at the cross. Because the worst thing I would ever have to endure in this life doesn't even scratch the surface 
of the depth of suffering Christ experienced on the cross. And yet, Jesus still chose to bear it for us. He didn't have to. But his agape love for us was that deep, that persistent. And in that love, Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. We're adopted into God's family, no longer children of wrath, destined for death, right? That's what we were before we came to know Jesus. Can I get an amen? We were, we were children of wrath, destined for death. But, but now God's beloved children, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, who calls us his brother and his sister. Verses 11 through 15. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, right? So we and Jesus are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. The author goes on to say, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but us, Abraham's descendants. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus' death and resurrection, the powers that once ruled over us have been broken. Okay, not will be broken. This is a past tense. Have been broken. The power that evil, sin, and death once held over us, right? Remember the consequence of the fall that, that, that evil and sin and death hold this power over us? That power has now been overcome by Jesus' sacrifice. The devil, effectively, has been declawed. Now, instead of fearing death, we can embrace it because we already have new life in Christ. We know that our physical death is not the end. So when we face death in this life, we can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And it was for this reason that Jesus had to be made like us. The only way Jesus could free us from the prison of sin and death was to become one of us and pass through death itself. Verse 17, for this reason, he, Jesus, had to be make, made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So this is part of the mystery of the incarnation, or Jesus becoming human, that, that he was fully human in every way, right? He didn't just look like a human. He wasn't just God in a human costume, but rather the very God who created the universe became one of us, like us in every regard. He was born through the pain of child labor. He was raised by human parents. He had quirks, right? Maybe he liked salt on his watermelon or ketchup on his mac and cheese. I don't know, right? He had feelings, and experience the entire range of human emotions, happiness, joy, pain, anxiety, and yes, even grief. Except Jesus was not like us in one way. He was without sin, holy in every regard. 
Now, it's, it's important to note that, that Jesus' holiness does, does not make him less human. It actually makes him more human. Because Jesus was human as God intended us humans to be. It was because of this holiness that, that Jesus was able to, to make a way for us to be in right relationship with God, where before there was only sin and death. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we need the cross. Like the congregation of Hebrews, we look around us and we see evil in the world and it makes us weary. We see sin and death and suffering and we long for freedom and we wonder, why can't God just get rid of all the evil in the world? But here's the problem. The same evil that we see in the world is also in us. So if God were to get rid of all the evil in the world, He'd have to get rid of us too. That's kind of a problem. And this is where atonement comes in. Because on the cross, Jesus traded His life for our lives. Right? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So that's what we deserve in our sin. And if, if you have struggled with sin, if you've, if you've struggled with the, the power that it has over your life and succumbing to temptation, you know your need for salvation. You know the effects of sin, right? That it doesn't, it doesn't only break your relationship with God, it breaks your relationship with other people. Right? It has an effect on the people around you, the people you love and care about. It destroys relationships, and it wreaks havoc on our lives. And so if you've ever been enslaved to the power of sin, you know your need for salvation. And you know your need for someone to come and step in on your behalf and to save you. And that's what we see on the cross, is Jesus trading His life for our life. Jesus dying in our place so that we didn't have to pay what we deserved in our sin. He was the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And that's why a gospel without the cross is no gospel at all. Without the cross, we have no hope, no way to be right with God. We only have sin and death. But in the cross, we find life. We find redemption. We find forgiveness. And not only that, but we find the strength to weather the trials and temptations that we will still face in this life. Verse 18, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So here we return where we started this morning to our weary congregation of Hebrews faced with the message of the cross. Life had gotten hard and they were starting to fold, right? Faith had gotten demanding and they were starting to fall away. Temptation was knocking at their door and they were about to give in. Now, of course, we know what that feels like. We know what it is to have temptation knock at our door. We face it every day. And when the storm comes, it's much easier to give in to the wind than it is to stand up and face it. Amen? But when we look on the cross, we see a Savior who, when faced with manifold suffering, didn't fold or go against the Father's will. Why? Persistent, undefeatable, agape love for His brothers and sisters. 
And it is in this love that we can stand when we feel like folding in the face of temptation. When we feel crushed beneath hardship, we can sing in faith, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ere such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you're here this morning and you don't know this power, We're going to have the opportunity to experience it firsthand in just a moment because we're going to be celebrating communion this morning. So if you're here this morning and and you feel weary and heavy laden, if you feel beaten down by temptation, if you feel like power or sin has a stronghold over your life, this table is for you. If you've fallen away from following Jesus, if you feel like, you know what, I'm, I'm that person who folded, who left the church in Hebrews, and who's folded time and time again under temptation, this table is for you. There's grace in the cross of Jesus Christ. But in order to come to this table, we must first recognize our own sin before God. We must acknowledge our sin and our need for salvation and confess our sin to God, to turn away from it and seek to lead a new life. So at this time, I invite you to join me in a prayer confession as we confess our sin before God and one another. Let's pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now, Heavenly Father, hear our prayers of confession as we pray them in the silence of our hearts.